knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Shut up and sit down. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Bowhunter Chronicles podcast. Again, I'm your host, Adam Miller, here with John Borsma. And uh, today we've got a special guest uh, on the line here, um, Garrett Prawl. He, you may know him from YouTube as the DIY Sportsman. Um, he's also on the Sportsman's Nation podcast network, um, doing the DIY Sportsman podcast. And uh, so how are you doing tonight, Garrett? Doing great. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, you're our uh, first guest here, so bear, bear with us as we uh, get going here. Yeah, no problem. So John and I, you know, we grew up here in West Michigan. I started hunting, you know, bait. It was throw out a pile of carrots and go out there. And then, you know, that was that was the way that it, we did it forever until I met my wife, and that's John's uncle. And then we start. he introduced me into hunting runways and actually doing a little bit of scouting and things like that and so um and that's pretty much the way that you had grown up hunting as well john no i i didn't we weren't allowed to hunt bait my no, dad I, I meant with frank there oh yeah my dad and my uncle frank were yeah we just we'd go out and scout and we never we weren't allowed to hunt bait and we weren't allowed to kill does so and so you're from you grew up in wisconsin then and now you're in minnesota or yeah that's correct i grew up in Kind of the Appleton area of Wisconsin. I live in the Twin Cities now. And uh, so how was your introduction to hunting or what What did that, how did you start? Well, my first couple of years, it sounds like we're pretty similar to yours. Uh, my dad had hunted when he was growing up a little bit, but he hadn't done it for a while. And then when I got close to the age where I could start to hunt, he started to get back into it. And at that time, the only real family that we had that also hunted was my uncle. And so we would go hunting with him. Um it started off pretty much, uh, we had a couple rifle seasons, but also a little bit of bow hunting, like a couple weekends here and there. It wasn't anything too serious. And that was what kind of got me exposed to the sport and kind of lit the fire. And then from that point, I started getting interested into how to kind of improve our success and found sites like at the time, Blood Brothers Outdoors and the Hunting Beast and all that kind of stuff. And that made a huge impact on where I kind of learned from there. And what time frame was that? I mean... How long that was, was that probably transition? Around, it was probably around 2005, I think. I started finding out about all that stuff, and I had started hunting in 2012, or 2002, excuse me. So roughly about a three-year period where we were, you know, blindly stumbling around trying to figure it out on our own. Okay. Yeah, so I think 
I started, man, I don't know, in the 90s. It was, yeah, <laughs> 95, something like that. And it wasn't until into the early 2000s where um, I was actually going out and doing some semblance of, of scouting, but it wasn't anything um, kind of like what we, we've moved into today. Yeah, even like you mentioned Dan Infault. Adam turned me on to his videos and stuff. And so, I mean, I've always gone out and scouted and that was just, that was just how we did it. You know, uh, Adam learned when he started dating my cousin Casey that Frank would go out and just drive roads and just walk the woods and just, you know, did more, seemed like dinking around than actual hunting. But, but yeah. <laughs> so then it was just you and your dad through this transition or were you um, like with your buddies working through the same same thing or did you do it all on your own? I mean, at that time, it was pretty much just my dad and I, for the most part. Um, a couple weekends out of the year, we'd go hunt with my uncle as well. Uh, but when we hunted with my uncle, it was on private land, and they had a little bit better idea of what was going on and how the deer moved through there. But when we were back at home, when it was just my dad and myself, it was all public land. And, you know, we would learn a little bit just from talking to some of the guys at the, the parking lot. We learned a little bit on our own, and, you know, it seemed like we might have eventually started to learn some things over time. Uh, but it was, it's a very slow process when you don't really know where to start, you know? Yeah. I mean, and I think that that's one of the things that I've, so my family has 240 acres, um, up in the upper peninsula, uh, upper peninsula of Michigan. And we're like eight miles from Wisconsin. It's a solid seven and a half hour drive from where I'm at. So going up there and scouting is not, you know, a weekend or, a, you know, I can't just run up there at, at any right. point in time. So the hard part for me in this whole transition of starting to do more scouting and more, um, I guess, in-season scouting, things like that is somewhat complacency. So you've only got so much time. I've got this place where I always see deer here or see deer there, but we're never seeing the deer that, uh, that I want to see. And it's hard, it's very hard to break out of that where you end up just in the same spot because you're going to see a deer and it's not the same deer. That's one of the things that I've taken away from listening to people who do that hunting beast style hunting is that you're not going to necessarily see many deer, but you're going to see more deer that you're actually looking for. Right. You see the right deer. Right. So when you started, how, I guess, how long have you been hunting with the hang and hunt stand and sticks type setup? Uh, about 2005-ish is when I started to get into it. So, yeah, looking at over 10 years now. And is the natural progression, I mean, I've talked to a couple of different people now, and they do that style of hunting, and it ends up, they go, I'm going to do hang and hunt, and then whether it's, I don't know if it's a weight factor, if it's a convenience factor, but then they switch to a saddle or a, a, a sling. Yeah, I think at a certain point, it's kind of a natural, at least a natural thought transition for most people. Because you are doing that amount of work every single hunt, you're always setting the stand up, you're always bringing the stand down. So I think more so than people who hunt just in the same spot every time where you're just walking out and walking back, doing that additional work gives you extra time to think about how can I make this a little bit more efficient or how can I make this easier? Do you think it's more effective? It can be if it allows you to get into spots where you might not otherwise have gone is it is it something that you think is like overlooked do you think it's it's like or does it take a special type of person to do it 
I mean, we hunted for years and years and years for climbers and still hunted out of a climber, um, this year. And it just seems like, I mean, twice this year I was in a position where I couldn't find the right tree and it cost me an opportunity. And so that's starting to make me definitely change this year. But for that, does it take a, a certain type of person to say, well, I'm not even going to bring a stand. I'm just going to be slung from a tree. Cause I remember seeing them in magazines long ago and I thought that just seems absurd. Yeah. I think for a long time, just kind of the public perception of it, of saddle hunting in particular has kind of kept a lot of people from trying it that might've otherwise liked to have tried it. You know, it's like you see a lot of people using hang on tree stands and so that's what people are comfortable with. They're comfortable sitting down. They sit down at work, sit down at home. Uh, so it's a very natural thing. People can understand what it's going to be like before they even try it. Whereas, you know, like for the longest time, you see a guy saddle hunting, but you don't really know what it's like. You don't know what it feels like to be in a saddle. You don't know how to move around with it. It's hard to kind of imagine that. So I think, you know, over the last several years, the people who have tried it have kind of been a special breed of person to go ahead and take the leap. But I think now also there's more and more, you know, videos and podcasts and what have you that pop up that really allow people to share information. And so I think it's becoming a lot more popular now. There's a little bit easier barrier to entry. So is that, is is that your exclusive way of hunting now is just with the saddle then? Last, last season I did all my hunting out of a saddle. The year before that, it was maybe 60, 40 in favor of a tree stand. So have you, so has it ever slowly progressing toward a saddle? Sorry. Has it ever hindered you in a, you know, situation where has it ever, you know, cost you a, a shot? I've never hunted uh, one, so. I mean, there's, so with a saddle, so like with, if you have a hang on tree stand, you're going to have some blind spots uh, and you're going to have some areas where it's hard to get a shot. You know, like if you have a deer that walks in from behind you and comes into your weak hand side, you, it's tough to be able to move and get a shot off right. undetected with a, a hang on stand. And with a saddle, you have, you don't really have blind spots as much. There's, you can shoot 360 degrees around the tree, but there's also areas where, if a deer comes in, you got to do a lot of movement to get a shot off. And so like for me, when I was learning to use a saddle, you make mistakes, uh, because you're not prepared to, to do a, to know when to move, to know how to move, to get a certain shot off. And so I've missed opportunities because of that. Uh, but now it's to the point where I've hunted out of it enough that it's not as big of a deal as it used to be. Okay. So there's, there's a learning curve to it, just like anything, yeah. but yeah, and I'd say the learning curve for saddle hunting is probably a little bit bigger than the learning curve for tree stand hunting is. Okay. So one of the good, um, I think this is a good transition point. So listening to uh, your podcast, uh, when you were kind of going, talking about the saddles, and you went from you know being the DIY sportsman, the rock harness and sit drag to a saddle. And you'd mentioned, you know, when you hunt from a, a platform or a hang on stand, the, the one of the things that I see is the barrier there is the saddles are 300 bucks before you even get to try one out to see if you like it or if it's something that's going to work for you. Um, how would you say someone can transition into something like that? Because your uh, co-host there and I, I, the other people that I've spoken to um, about doing the rock harness sit drag, they say, well, it's never was designed to be that way and you're kind of taking your life into your own hands, that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, that kind of applies. Anytime you do something DIY where safety is potentially an impact, 
Like, obviously, there's a certain amount of risk that you're undertaking by doing that kind of thing. And the rock harness sit drag is an example of that. Um, the way that I used to use that rock harness and sit drag, I would basically always have myself tethered into the rock harness, into that front belay loop. And so the sit drag was kind of like a, a redundancy. You know, I was putting all my weight on the sit drag, but if I were to drop a couple inches or the sit drag would break, I'd be caught by the rock harness. So it takes a little bit of extra caution uh, just to be able to make sure that if you're doing something yourself, you either, well, you one, know what you're doing, and two, you have some redundancies built in. So if you're using stuff that's not being used as initially intended or not being used as, as it was tested for, that you're doing it in as safe a, a manner as possible. But you, that point you made up earlier where um, you talked about how it's a little bit harder for people to make the leap because you can't just, it's a big investment just to even try it out to see if you're going to like it or not. And I think you definitely got a good point there. Um, more recently, it seems like there's a lot of information popping up. Uh, Boudreaux Boswell on YouTube has got some great saddle hunting videos that answer a lot of the questions that people have. G2 Outdoors has got a YouTube channel where he's posting a ton of videos on saddle hunting and you know what people can expect, what type of platforms people use, how to move around, what people can use for tethers. And so while there are cheaper options to get into it, like the rock harness and sit drag combo, there's, uh, it's becoming a little bit more easy, I think, for people to actually learn about it before they take the leap and open up the wallet. Aside from the the benefits of it, I see, you know, where you have every shot angle kind of covered. You can run around the tree. Um, you can keep the tree between you and you know where the potentially the animals are coming from. Um, is it much more comfortable? Is it is that one of the big draws to it as well? I mean, I think they can each be comfortable. Like I can do an all day sit in a lone wolf and I can do an all day sit in a saddle. And it's like once you initially get that saddle put on and you become comfortable with it, you can set it up to be extremely comfortable to the point where you can take naps in it. I mean, you have basically uh, the mesh, the seat that you're sitting in, I can kind of make it almost similar to like if you were, uh, say, like sitting on a, a swing at a playground. Like a swing is pretty comfortable to sit in and with the saddle, it's kind of the same thing where you got all of your weight on the saddle, but then you can take off some of that load and spread it onto your feet. And just depending on how different people like to do things, some guys will have more of the load on the feet. Some guys will have more of the load on the hips and the actual saddle itself. And you can kind of bounce back and forth and spread the load. And then you can also have a backrest on the saddle. So you can actually lean back and just kind of really spread the load out in more places Whereas a tree stand, you're really just sitting or standing and kind of bouncing back and forth between the two. And so with that, as one of your uh, do-it-yourself projects, you also have made your own sticks. And that seems to be, uh, from your other discussions on your podcast, sounds like you wanted to make them tailored to yourself. A lot of the projects that you're doing are seem like you're looking for a better option, not necessarily a cheaper option, correct? Right, right, for sure. And so what is that where that stemmed from is the like your initial um, YouTube channel has been around since I think 2005 2006 but it didn't take off until after that right is that am I right there somewhere in the timeline Yeah I think that's about right and then about yeah 2011ish I uploaded a couple hunts and then after that I started uploading some 
actual how-to videos and DIY videos. So in that DIY, when you started out, was it the same thing? Was it out of necessity where you're trying to save money or create a better product or just say, okay, well, I want to, I want to show people, this is what I'm doing. I want to show people. I think this is a good, good way to do it. Uh, I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, sometimes you see something that you really want, um, but you might not have the money to, to pay for it. So you try to make it yourself. On the other hand, if something that you know you want doesn't exist, then it becomes kind of a more out of a necessity thing. And that was kind of the, the thing with the climbing sticks. You can't go out and buy a climbing stick that is exactly like the one that I made, which is what I had wanted. So I decided to make one. Yeah, it's kind of a lot like the way that John does things. <laughs> yeah, I figure if uh, someone can build it, I mean, I can do it too. So if there's something I need and don't have, that's like with the the strings and stuff. I just started building strings for our bows and stuff. So with um, with the the do-it-yourself stuff, I started watching your videos um, for the the filming. I think that those are the ones that I noticed right off the bat. Because it was helpful, it was good information. Because it was, you, you had a lot of different options where you were saying, "This is um, what this one looks like. This is what I tried with this, and now this is where I've moved to." Um, doing all of the filming, what I've found is it's just so much extra stuff to carry with you. How do you balance the the hunt versus getting the footage versus you know? Because you're doing it, most of it is self filmed, correct? Right. Yeah. So you just, I mean, you got to make a decision before you go out. What do I want to accomplish with the video? And if you're, if you say my goal is to accomplish this and it requires more equipment, then you just got to be all right with it. You know, whereas a lot of people are just going to be fine with using like an action cam out and onto the bow and they're going to share the, the footage with their friends or they might upload it on YouTube or they might uh, just, you know, kind of keep it for themselves. There's, no really wrong way to do it. You just got to decide what your goals are and, and what you want and be okay with the consequences that come with it. And so what setups are you running right now for um, filming? Right now for my main camera, I have a Sony FDR AX100 with a Rode VideoMic Pro. That's kind of my main camera. And then I have that on a, a fourth arrow camera arm. And then for second angles, I have uh, one of the Tacticam 4.0s and I also have a Sony AS100V, and then I recently picked up a Polaroid Cube Plus to add to the mix. And so do you carry all of that with you going out each time, or you decide, okay, this in this spot, I'm going to go, it's a mile, two miles back there, so I'm only going to bring this and this, and I'll be fine with whatever I get? Or are you saying, we're going to have a full cinematic everything, all of them running at once? I mean, I usually just bring everything with me. The nice thing about the action cameras is they only weigh a few ounces a piece. So, you know, carrying those things with me, like I can have the one, the Tacticam mounted on the bow isn't really all that much different than just having a stabilizer on the bow. Uh, so from that perspective, it's not a huge difference for me. Um, the Polaroid Q Plus fits into one of the pouches on the side of the saddle. So I don't even notice it's there really. It gets put up on the, the strap that I used to hang my bow from. And then the the other Sony, I just kind of mount that usually on a branch or wherever I can find room. And again, it doesn't weigh all that much. Sometimes I will set up fewer cameras just if I don't think it, the extra angle is going to be worth it. Um, or if I don't have a lot of time. Or, you know, there might just be any given reason on a specific day where I might just decide to use the main camera and that's it. But uh, 
if I have enough time to get all set up and I want to really make a good video about it and I feel confident about the sit, then I'll make sure everything's set up just how I want it. And are those, um, I guess I'm not familiar with um, those cameras, are they uh, DSLRs or is one like a prosumer and one is a DSLR? The the AX100 is it's kind of a borderline consumer prosumer camcorder. It's got a lot of prosumer functions, um, but it's still, I guess, marketed toward the high-end consumer range, I guess. Um, it's got a lot larger image sensor than your standard camcorder. It's got a one-inch image, image sensor, but unlike some of the consumer camcorders, it has you know manual focus buttons, manual iris, gain, shutter speed as external buttons rather than something you got to sort through the menu to try and find. And uh, it's also doesn't it doesn't have the big zoom that you typically get with a consumer camcorder, and it doesn't usually have the uh, the massive image stabilization either that you get on some of the cheaper camcorders like the AX53 or 33, which are definitely more consumer camcorders. The other ones are all basically just action cams. Okay, so that other Sony is just an action cam as well? Yep. Okay. And I do have a Sony NEX5R, which is a mirrorless, which is kind of similar to a DSLR, but I haven't been bringing that out on my hunts recently for the last couple of years. Probably I just use it for uh, time lapses and photos now. And so we saw your video um, about your your trip out west. Um, tell us a little bit about that, huh? Yeah, so we've gone out west, the same group, uh, more or less, three years now. And the first year, it was rifle elk. And I think we all saw elk or had opportunities, uh, but nobody got one on the ground. The second year was kind of similar, except it was an archery hunt. Uh, I had a, a couple opportunities where, you know, I drew back on a cow, but didn't release the arrow. Um, one of the other guys missed a bull. And then this, this current year, this past year that we went up there, uh, I actually got a mule deer tag as opposed to elk, whereas the other guys still had their elk tags. But we went during the same time of the year, we went to the same place. So we kind of knew uh, more or less where we'd expect to see some animals. And I was fortunate enough to get a mule deer on my the second day of the trip. So where were you at exactly? I mean, you were in Colorado or where, where were you out West? Yes. Colorado. Yeah, it was Colorado. And so were those like over the counter tags? Or? The elk tags were, the mule deer tag was not, it was a, a tag you're supposed to basically get as a non-resident without any preference points. Uh, but it took me one preference point to get that one. So when like we're, we're, getting ready to plan this trip to go out west what kind of uh tips do you have for us to uh or for anyone in, in that fact do you guys have a state picked out yet i don't okay probably the the hardest thing i think initially is finding where to go to start it's like you can scour maps as much as you want and if you look at the entire state, there's just so much land to pick apart because you can pick the, the state apart on a macro level or it's like any given spot that you throw the dart at on the map, you can zoom in and just really pick apart a very specific area. So it's like, how do you even know which area to, to focus on to start picking it apart? That's kind of the hardest thing for me. It's like, how do I know that this one specific area is any better than the other specific area? And what it seems like a lot of the times is that it's more kind of the micro level that actually matters more so than the macro level so a lot of times guys will argue about specific units being better or worse than others um, but I can almost probably guarantee you that 
any unit that is known for having elk or mule deer or whatever you guys are going to be going after is going to have them and they're going to be available to to kill. It's just a matter of finding them in that specific landscape that you guys pick out. So what our plan kind of has been is to try and have, try and pick areas that gives you good opportunity year after year, as opposed to, you know, trying to spend several points on one good unit. Because our plan is if we can learn a specific area very well and go back there year after year, we can eventually piece together more and more uh, pieces of the puzzle and that's what's going to end up making us better hunters in a specific area as opposed to just trying to hope that the unit that we pick is going to be the magic unit. Right. So you're putting some legwork on the ground and, and building it up for years to come, not just one one good hunt if you get a, a good section. Right. Because if you put in a bunch of points for a certain area, it's like the first two, three days that you're there, you're just trying to figure it out. And then if you don't see anything those first couple of days or the sign's kind of weak, then you're kind of, you know, wondering, do I stay here? Do I move to a different trailhead? And then you end up, you know, half your trip is gone by the time you might start to figure out a certain pattern. Right. And you might end up at the end of that week or 10 days and you wish that you could go back. Right. I end up only actually hunting a couple of days after. And with, with that, what is your, like, time frame? I mean, because I think realistically – you know, for a regular guy, a week, but then you factor in weekends on the end of that is like nine days is, seems like a reasonable amount of time. But then if you have to drive two days or or whatever to get out there, I mean, when you guys are planning your time frame, what are you, what are you realistically looking at? Pretty much just what you said. You know, we'll look at a, an entire week plus the weekends and the two days on the front and back end of that trip will basically be driving or a day and a half. So when we've gone... It's always at least three people in the vehicle, and we'll just take shifts. Uh, so it's you know 16-hour drive or 17 or whatever it ends up being, and we'll just have one guy drive through the first couple states, the other guy switch off, and then one guy gets the, the graveyard shift early morning and end up uh, getting there. I mean, if you take off a Thursday after work or a Friday after work, you can get there a day and a half later and actually start hiking up the mountain uh, and get camp set up before the end of the night. That's kind of what we've done. And then when exactly you leave just kind of depends on how the hunt goes. And, you know, you have to start getting down by a certain time in order to start driving back to get back to work. And usually you don't get a ton of sleep that last night before you have to go back into work the next week. But usually you can make up for it. Yeah, and when you guys are um, camping in, hiking in, what is your average um, day as far as, like, miles put on? Are you – part? because I know you guys had a truck and then you were – camping out still so you were parking the truck camping in and doing like a spike camp type th- deal or did you have like a base camp mm-hmm. set up and then camp from there we basically it's kind of like a non-mobile spike camp or a base camp however you want to call it uh the place that we have gone the last couple of years basically we found an area that's roughly a mile and a half ish from the truck uh, but there's a lot of elevation gain between what between a and b and so while it's not really that far, we found that it's kind of a pretty good balance between the guys that are just hunting from the trailheads. You can get a little bit past a lot of those guys, but you're also not going so deep that you get into some of the areas where you have outfitter camps and guys taking in horses to get four, five, six miles back, and then you start getting pressure from way deep within. Uh, it's almost like we found that there's kind of a, a little bit of a dead zone between where those 
two groups of guys are coming from that a lot of the animals that get uh, pushed to. I think that's good information that I would have never thought, you know, I would have thought, well, I'm going to go back as far in as I can. and we're... Yeah, and that was the, honestly, that was the biggest surprise the very first year that we went out to Colorado. The rifle season for for elk, that was only a five-day hunt. We started packing in the first day, and we were all, you know, young guys in fairly good shape. And we had all been, you know, reading books like Cam Haynes' book and stuff on the internet and all excited to work harder than everybody else and get back in there deep. And then it gets uh, pretty demoralizing when you got guys hiking past you on horseback with the horses carrying hundreds of pounds of gear and the guys sitting up there eating donut. <laughs> so um, that made us, that was an eye opener for us just to know that if you don't have animals, yeah, you might be able to work harder than everybody else, but it might not necessarily give you an advantage. And more than anything, the animals are going to go where they feel most safe and feel the least amount of pressure. And that's always going to be usually where the, the people aren't. So if the people are deep, the animals might be close to the road, which is counterintuitive. But you know, Or you might have the other scenario where guys are just hunting from the road. or um, The areas that we've gone in have always been no vehicles. So I think that plays a part of it too. I think if you have, I, I, this is all speculation, but I would imagine if you're hunting in areas where guys are allowed to use four-wheelers and allowed to drive trucks you know, out into the along the pack trails, then I would imagine that probably attracts a type of a type of hunter that stays closer to those pack trails i'm not 100 percent on that but that's what i would assume whereas uh, with some of the wilderness areas or areas that are either horse or walking only no motorized traffic once you get past the trailhead it seems like you either get the hikers or you get the the horseback guys so you're just trying to find that middle ground where the the hikers don't want to yeah, go just just trying to find the areas where the the pressure isn't so like when you what made you pick Colorado? Do you guys use like um, like the Go Hunt app or anything for getting? Because it seems like the tags and stuff, and the seasons. Like you're saying, there's five day for the rifle. Do you guys use something yeah. to help figure all that out? We we didn't. I trying to remember the reason that we picked Colorado in the first place. I think opportunity was a, a big part of it. The the seasons and stuff they're pretty easy to figure out, and there's lots of over the counter elk opportunities. So I think that was probably one of the big draws for us initially. And one of the guys that was in our initial group, uh, he knew some people that had gone out in Colorado, and we didn't end up even going to the same unit because the other guys had hunted private land. But just kind of that familiarity and the idea that, oh, maybe we should do a Colorado elk trip someday. And then we decided to do the elk trip, and it made sense just to go to Colorado, and we started doing the research from there. Um, I guess walk us through your hunt this year. Uh, you were obviously successful what 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 were some things that I, I mean I've seen the video and I've heard you talk about it it was uh you know what were some of the things that helped you I know it wasn't the way that you had mapped it out by any means but what are some things that uh, I guess go through the hunt and tell us how how it all came to be yeah so we got all packed up uh, that first day in set camp and I went out the very first night because archery season had already been open and the other guys we were hunting with had muzzle loaders and their tag wasn't uh, valid until the next day. So I was out there that first night uh, looking for, for deer, just doing some glassing. And when I got back to camp, they said that they had seen like four mule deer walk within like a hundred yards of camp. I was like, Oh, that's cool. Um, <laughs> so just having that kind of Intel, having extra eyes out in the mountains and you're getting that Intel fresh every night. That was a huge help. Uh, because after that, 
you know, with them hunting after elk, usually a little bit higher elevations and me trying to find the mule deer, eventually we, it was pretty, uh, pretty easy for us to figure out where the deer were moving through. And since we were there in the past, we kind of had already uh, a vague idea of where to look. So that was a big help too, just coming back to the same spot. And then I ended up finding basically a little pocket of aspens, um, tucked into an area that was mostly dark timber and there was a bunch of deer that were moving back and forth. It seemed like, you know, morning and night. Um, the first time I walked through there, I kicked up a, bu- a couple deer. And so the next morning I went in there. The next evening I went in there and I saw deer, actually quite a few, mostly does and fawns, uh, but also a couple bucks too. And so I was like, well, as long as I'm seeing deer here, I might as well just keep on sitting here. And that next day I ended up getting a little bit, uh, a little bit bored after sitting in the morning. And so I decided to explore a little bit more of the mountain and I started walking across basically at a horizontal elevation through the dark timber. And there's a lot of little streams and stuff. So you get these big giant ravines that you have to walk through and there's a ton of deadfall everywhere. Uh, some of the areas are actually pretty dangerous to walk through if there's any moisture on the ground, just cause there's, you get pretty slippery and you got sharp sticks poking everywhere. But I was walking through one of these type of areas. I can't remember if it was like nine 30 or 10 or 10 30 in the morning. Um, but I had an idea in my mind of where I wanted to go to look for some more sign. And as I was walking through one of these areas of dark timber, I kind of got caught off guard, uh, by looking up and just happening to see a buck in that dark timber, like 30 yards away. And I had the bow in my hand and I actually had my camera like 10 yards behind me cause I was filming myself at that time, just getting some B roll footage, walking through that deadfall. And so luckily the deer didn't see me before I saw him, which is always huge. And I was able to draw back once he got behind some of that, of those pines and just basically waited for him to walk into an area that I could get a shot through. And it took me a, a few different tries to actually to get him to stop. And finally, once he stopped, I had just a little bit of an area to fit an arrow through. And then I, I took the shot and then, I mean, that was, it all happened pretty fast. And it was a little bit unexpected. I felt like I got lucky almost a little bit because it wasn't anticipated, but it's hard to complain. So what are you using for um, equipment, like your bow setup? Uh, on this hunt, I have a New Breed GX2, which is a 32-inch axle-to-axle bow. I had it set at 70 pounds. Um, the arrow setup that I was using was the Gold Tip Pierce Platinums. And 300 spine, and I had basically 150 grain broadhead hanging off the front. It was uh, oh, what was the name of the broadhead? It was an afflictor broadhead. I think the the hybrid K2 hybrid. I think it's called. So it's kind of like a rage in that you have two blades that slip backwards, but there the tip on that broadhead is a lot thicker. The ferrule is a lot thicker. It's made out of stainless steel. And so that was one of the, the reasons I went to try that broadhead was just because I wanted something that was going to give me a little bit more weight out in the front of the, of the arrow, but still give me some of the extra forgiveness for potentially a longer shot in windier conditions. And on the tail end of the arrow, I was shooting four fletch. Um, I think it was fusion Q2I veins that I was using at the time. And then just a, a lighted knock. And so does Colorado have any equipment restrictions i mean the things that i'm reading about uh, idaho and a lot of the 
other states out west is, you know, no electronics on your bow, no lighted knocks. You know, most people for elk and things like that will use a fixed blade, and, and some of the states don't even allow mechanicals. So it's pretty pretty wide open in Colorado. Uh, for archery, I believe it is. Um, I didn't really have anything electronic on the bow itself. The only thing that really qualified would be the, the lighted knock. Um, for muzzleloader, I know they had a lot of restrictions because the other guys had to deal with that. Um, but for archery, not as much. As far as a fixed blade versus expandable, it was actually a kind of a funny story. I bought 150 grain fixed blades, some VPAs right before, well, not right before, probably three, four weeks before the trip to get them all dialed in. And I was having some issues with what turned out to be uh, consistency on gripping the bow that was causing like one out of every four or five shots to, to plane off like four or five inches at 40 yards. And so that made me pretty nervous before the trip because I couldn't get it figured out. So I ended up buying those expandables. But now that I got that grip issue figured out, I'll probably go back to fixed blade broadheads for that bow setup. And so you're also shooting uh, traditional bows as well, correct? Yeah, around here for whitetails, I'm using a recurve. And that's a, another new breed, correct? But you've made your own longbow, correct? Yep, I've made my own longbow, and I have a, the RK1 is the name of the bow from New Breed that I'm shooting as well. And I've seen lately a lot of the guys are, are moving towards traditional or going back going to tra- back towards tra- it. <laughs> traditional, I guess. Um, what is the, what's drawn you to shooting traditional versus the, the compounds? Uh, you know, I think... On a certain level, they've always kind of been intriguing. Even when I was a kid, trying to make bows out of sticks and stuff like that. Um, but I think what, trying to think if there's any one thing that really drew me to it initially. And I think just after seeing enough bow building videos on YouTube, I just finally said to myself, it's time to do this. And I started searching around for a kit to be able to start with because I didn't really have many of the tools to be able to I guess, get wood roughs on and ready to, to glue up into a laminate. Because uh, the bow that I built, it was uh, bamboo-backed ipe. So if you have basic tools, you can make board bows or stave bows. Uh, but I wanted to, to go the laminate route with a reflex-deflex bow. And for that, I it basically made a lot more sense just to start with a kit where the, the bamboo and the ipe were already kind of roughly cut so that all I had to do was glue them up, and then all the work was actually in the tailoring and the, the final shaping of the bow. And so you've you've hunted with that bow, and have you killed deer with the bow that you built? I no, I haven't killed anything with it. I've taken one shot. Um, have had probably at least a half a dozen deer that I could have potentially shot if I had, you know, like compound type of range um, while hunting with that bow, because obviously the range that you take shots at with any kind of trad bow isn't the same as what I would take with a compound. Uh, but the one deer that I ended up taking a shot at, actually I have a video of it on YouTube. I uh, took the shot at like 23 yards and that arrow moving at like 150 feet per second, just right at the last second, looked good the whole way and then drop right underneath it. Um, so luckily it was a clean miss, but yeah, it's probably one of those things where I'll pick it back up at some point. Um, or I might just build another bow just out of, you know, curiosity and for fun. Yeah, I, I bought a, I've got a Martin Jaguar takedown and uh, I bought a takedown because that's one of the other things is that, you know, having a 60 inch bow or a 58 inch bow 
carrying it around in your car or anything like that isn't to me all that practical but uh, at our cabin in the up that we've got a red squirrel problem and uh, we in between hunts in the day we'd shoot them with our compounds and ended up messing up a lot of arrows so i bought it strictly to shoot chipmunks and red squirrels up there but i i love shooting it but it's just like i think for me archery is so <laughs> difficult or uh, i don't know it's tough enough as it <laughs> yeah, is. And the, just, there's this movement towards, well, we're going to go back and we're going to make it more difficult. And I respect the heck out of anybody that, that does it. And I think it's amazing. But I just, the guys that have either the traditional only guys or the compound only guys and the guys that switch back and forth just is is amazing to me, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, we have a few guys at the club that they shoot leagues with their traditional bows and then They'll go out, you know, hunting season. Well, I got to get the compound out for, for hunting, but that's kind of funny. Yeah, I mean, like for me, it's like whitetails around home. I know I can get opportunities. And I've shot enough of them with the compound. I'm okay with, you know, getting that little bit of extra experience, and I'm okay with going home with nothing if that's what it takes right. to get that experience, you know. And not everybody's okay with that. And I think – uh even more than that, like if you were to expand it to like Western hunting, like why would I, if I hunt with a recurve, you know, here in Minnesota or Wisconsin, why would I choose the compound to go out West? It's like, well, out West, I don't have any experience. I haven't, I hadn't shot an elk ever at that point. I hadn't shot a mule deer ever. I'm trying to, you know, get some real true experience out there. And, and I, I want to come home with something for that, you know, $400 tag. Right. In uh, in a five day hunt. (laughs) It's like, yeah, if I, if I lived in Colorado, I'd probably, it wouldn't be that big of a deal for me to, to hunt with a trad bow. But it's like when you got a, even, you know, for elk $615 tag and you got five days to fill it, it's like, I, I don't have confidence I can get it done. I don't have confidence I can bring an elk into 25 yards or whatever I feel comfortable with shooting in that amount of time with land that I'm really not all that familiar with. Yeah, I can totally see that. And I was just having this discussion with my dad. My dad goes out to Colorado every couple of years and um, he elk hunts with a rifle. And I just don't see any, there's no draw to that. There's no draw to um, rifle hunting. Even in that, I guess that's the exact same way I feel about rifle hunting around here is that I've killed enough deer with a rifle and I've killed, you know, a fair amount of deer with a bow, but I just, I just can't, there's no sport in it for me. Um, and I think maybe that's changing a little bit because I got in on a really nice buck, um, with, with my bow this year and it was 70 yards or so. And with a rifle, I mean, I really wanted to go back after him with a rifle, but I just, I just couldn't do it. So I think that that's probably the same argument with the traditional guys. I'm just not that far yet. So, yeah. And I mean, for me, like I hunt with a rifle too. And it's like, usually for me, what ends up happening is I hunt so hard in the early season and during the rut that's like, by the time the rifle season actually comes around, I'm ready to just put something in the freezer. And I'm usually a little bit less picky with the, the rifle. It's more of a, a, you know, a goal of trying to put some meat in the freezer to make sure I have enough for next year rather than the experience so much like it is with archery. Right. It's like, okay, it's time to get it done now. I've played around enough. Right. <laughs> just finish it off so i guess on that when you're saying you're you're hunting really hard you're using those um 
the hunting beast type tactics, which is um, the way that I understand it. There, you're going out and doing all of your scouting, finding the buck bedding area, and kind of getting into that buck's bedroom or a buck's bedroom, and you're waiting for the perfect opportunity to hunt that spot versus kind of what you're talking about with the rifle is going out and getting an opportunity at anything. Right. And it's kind of a, kind of a mix, I guess. So for early season, it's kind of a mix between hunting bedding areas that I know are there and I know have deer potential of a big buck, but they're low odd spots. And, you know, like, especially with the trad bow where again, I don't have as high of standards as I would have, if I was shooting a compound, Sometimes I'm also putting myself into areas where I'd expect to see deer. Maybe it's not a specific buck bed, but maybe it's an area where there's a lot of, a big area of red brush I know holds a lot of does, you know, and I'm just trying to put myself into opportunities to at least see something because, you know, it's like, it's fun to, to be able to have an opportunity at a giant. Um, but it's also, I think, fun just watching deer interact in their natural environment. So sometimes I'll just pick spots where I think I might see deer versus just only hunting spots that I think have the potential of showing a big buck. Yeah. I think that's one of the reasons that I wanted to get into filming was not to show any of the kills or, you know, any of that, but I think exactly what you said, the deer in their natural environment. And I can think of so many amazing things that I've seen while I was hunting that you can try to explain to somebody, but you can't, right. You just can't do it. You can't put it into words. Like you can, if you can see it on video where, you know, either right. bald eagles or bobcats or coyotes or any of that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. That style of, of hunting, what kind of area are you hunting in? Because you're hunting Minnesota and Wisconsin. Is it like old family yep. property or are you right near? I don't think the Twin Cities are really near Wisconsin, right? The Twin Cities, so Minneapolis is like roughly a half an hour drive. Okay ish depending on what side of town you're on to get to the actual border of wisconsin so when i'm driving over to wisconsin to hunt some of the spots that i like to hunt on the short end it's like 50 minutes on the long end it's like an hour and a half just depending on where i want to go and i mean i can get to spots that range from steep bluff country and you know vertical canyons all the way to marsh and all the way to just straight up farmland it's kind of all available within that hour and a half drive window that's kind of like us. We drive up to where I just bought the property. It's an hour and a half, so just not crossing state lines. Yeah. So is there a big disparity in the price of a tag? I mean, I think a out-of-state tag for Michigan is $170, I think, for a mediocre hunting at best. Yeah, it's about what it is for Wisconsin. It's 160 And same thing for Minnesota. A non-resident Minnesota license, I think, is still 160 So, I mean, when you compare it to something like Iowa where by the time you get the preference points, you're looking at six, 700 bucks. It doesn't seem that bad. But when you compare it to hunting in-state where you got a $30 license, it's quite a bit of a difference. Well, see, that's what I'm dealing with. With our property is it's really convenient when you're up there to just be able to walk out and hunt. And, you know, you don't have to drive anywhere. don't have to do anything like that. But with a seven-hour drive, it takes us six hours to get to Ohio. And Ohio's something like that over the counter and we've just had amazing success down there so it's really hard to make that seven hour drive you know for just the convenience of not having to drive half hour or so to your spot all right yeah I, i definitely know that feeling for sure and i mean even like 
this winter already I've taken one scouting trip over to North Dakota. I think that's the next date I want to try for an out-of-state as opposed to just going all the way always to Wisconsin just to kind of get that longer drive experience uh, and potentially a crack at a deer that I would have to work a lot harder for to get a chance at in either the stuff that I hunt in Minnesota or Wisconsin. Because like Minnesota, it's a I like hunting in Minnesota, uh, but you know some of the rules that they have, uh, the amount of deer that you can shoot in certain areas, some of the restrictions that they have, and just the, the sheer number of hunters. I know of giant bucks that get shot all the time. I shouldn't say all the time. I know of quite a few that get shot every year that are really nice. But the overall quantity compared to states where the hunter densities are a lot lower, it's just not nearly the same. Um, so it's like for the opportunity, I can understand why people will want to drive a long ways and want to pay a lot of money to go to a state like Iowa or uh, some of the Dakotas or Kansas or, or what have you, or Ohio. But I still like also just the convenience of being able to go to or Minnesota or Wisconsin and, you know, either putting meat in the freezer or being able to see a lot of deer or even having the, you know, the rare occasional giant buck walk out. And so what's the, what's drawn you to North Dakota? Is it going to be whitetail or um, mule deer? It would be whitetail. I think for, for mule deer, after my experience last year in Colorado, it's Colorado and Wyoming, I think, are going to be my two mule deer states. Just uh, the mountains out there, just there's something about them. It just kind of drives you, and it's really so much more of an experience for me to be able to go out and do a backpacking trip like that versus, you know, like some of the, the more plain state-style mule deer hunts that I see on TV. Just not really as uh, attractive of an experience to me. Um, so I think whitetail for, for sure in Minnesota, which is kind of a, a new desire, I guess, to try and do an expensive, a longer drive out of state hunt. Cause for however many years, I just haven't had any interest in it. Uh, but I have a, a couple of buddies that go out to North Dakota and they always seem to do pretty well on private land. Um, and North Dakota isn't a state that has a lot of public and most of the public that they do have is either all congregated into really large gigantic like federal land like they have a big national grasslands there's a big national wildlife refuge there's stuff like that in north dakota and then there's also just kind of little uh spots sporadically spread throughout the state that have some public land in them and i scouted it once and wasn't i mean it was good good stuff i saw a lot of sign but it, i also saw a lot of hunter sign and i'm thinking to myself well if i want to do an out-of-state hunt and I want to drive this far and spend this kind of money on a tag for a whitetail, which is something I have in my own state. I want to make sure it's really worth my while. So I probably will take another scouting trip in a different area that's a little bit more remote uh, just to see what I like. So when you're doing that, are you doing any um, door knocking or asking for permission or anything like that? Have you had any experience doing that? I've done a lot of it around home, especially during when I was in college. I did a lot of that. Um, not so much in the out-of-state hunts, just because right now I'm just trying to fire through as many different areas as I can to find something that really sticks out. And then maybe if I hunt that kind of an area for a while on public land and then I feel the desire that, to kind of spread out into some of the local the local private landowners to try and get permission, then at that time I might. But until I at least have a general area really dialed in, it probably doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But around like the Twin Cities, my roommate and I, we knocked on a lot of doors, probably hundreds of them. And we got yeses for like a handful, you know, maybe like one guy here that lets you hunt for the three weeks that his wife is out on vacation and then nothing after that. Or you might get the, the people that allow 
you to hunt, but they also allow eight other guys to hunt on 80 acres. And so at a certain point, the hassle with trying to, to maintain a relationship with a private landowner and, you know, let them know what your plans are, give them a text, say, hey, we're going to be out here this specific time. You don't know what other guys are doing out on that particular land. It gets to be almost to a, a point where it's almost more hassle than dealing with other guys on public land. And public land sometimes is almost like a breath of fresh air because you can just do whatever you want within the rules. Yeah, I, yeah. I can see that. Well, I think that's all we've got for you tonight. I really appreciate you coming on here and talking with us and um, a lot of good information. Uh, make sure to check out Garrett on his uh, YouTube, uh, which is the DIY Sportsman on YouTube. And then you're also uh, with the Sportsman's Nation, um, Sportsman's Nation podcast, doing the DIY uh, Sportsman segment on that too, correct? Yes, that's correct. All right. I think that's all we've got for today. So. Uh, another episode of the Bowhunter Chronicles in the books. All right. Nice talking to you. Yeah, thanks for having me on.